So good to be here, and I don't know what time zone I'm in because I was recently uh, in Los Angeles, and then I was in India for a few days, and then now I'm here in down under in Australia, so as long as the lights are on, I'm just going to keep going. Uh, but it is good to be with you, especially at a conference like this. Isn't it amazing, the unity that God gives us, I mean, without even knowing each other, because of Christ. And it's a bit of a taste of heaven, isn't it? We, we don't love each other first. It's His love that connects us together. And particularly, even as we look at His Word, and as we see the love of Christ through His Word, there is going to be a greater unity that is going to be produced over these next few days. So I am so excited to be here and excited even to be looking at the book of Ruth. Uh, your hospitality uh, has been amazing over the last few days and uh, now we get to look at the hospitality of Christ as we feed from Him and feed on His Word. The book of Ruth, as we have already kind of previewed for you, is a story of tragedy to triumph. And you can see God loves to demonstrate His great mercy and even the way in which his gospel works through the pages of suffering, often in the, in the lives of his people. And I'm sure many of you could, could identify with that. And, and this is the good shepherd doing what is better than what we would imagine for our own lives. C.S. Lewis said it in this way. C.S. Lewis said, and this is a great quote, he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. Sure, sometimes we have pleasures, but he whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And wouldn't you admit, like me, so often that I am so blind and so deaf to the things of God, and I need him to rouse me in ways that would cause me to walk again in the paths of pleasure, in the paths of peace, in the paths of true joy. And so the book of Ruth really demonstrates that for us in a very significant way. There is much for us, even as modern Christians in the church today, to identify with. And before we get into the first six verses, uh, someone was asking me uh, earlier, how in the world are you going to fit four chapters into five sessions? I could fit this into a hundred sessions. I mean, there is so much here. But we're only going to be looking at the first six verses, okay, tonight. Uh, but before we do that, I think it's important for us, just briefly, that's the most dangerous word that a preacher can say, just briefly, and 45 minutes later we might finish, uh, look at, at the context, look at the setting. And I, I really want to do that, and then you'll see the riches of even what is happening in chapter 1 and verses 1 through 6. And so some of you have your notes, and you can fill in the blanks, but mostly you can look at the text. The context of Ruth. The context of Ruth in an interesting way, is really the resolution of the book of Judges. And I'm going to uh, develop that for you in a little bit, but the way we can see this is historically, even when you go to some ancient scrolls that uh, Josephus talks about, the book of Ruth was really added on to the book of, of Judges as an appendix where the Jewish earlier uh, rabbis even saw Ruth as connected to what God was teaching them in Judges. And, and why is that? I think it's because the book of Judges kind of ends on a negative note, doesn't it? And, and you're almost looking for, God, isn't there more? 
And the, the book of Ruth causes us to see the appendix of salvation, even ultimately in Jesus Christ, that overcomes the sin of man. And so it's, it's really taken together, as, as I've put in our notes, a finite story. It's a small story about a small woman, about a small family in a small town in Bethlehem. And yet it's a finite story that shows an infinite salvation that is so much more greater. Aren't our lives like that? I mean, we are weak, we are small, and yet God, through his amazing mercy, works out big pictures of his redemption. And Ruth is just like that. And so the last verse of Judges, you remember the last verse of Judges? It reminds me of traffic in India. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is a sad ending to this book. And yet you can see the beginning. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 gives us this amazing hint of hope even. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed, there was famine in the land. You may say, where's the hope in that? We were reading Hebrews 12 earlier. When God disciplines, he's showing his love. And he's doing something that will ultimately lead us out of our sin, out of our trials, into amazing paths of mercy and redemption. And so there's even a hint of hope in that. In the days when the judges governed, there was famine in the land. And then we telescope into this idea. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. And so just quickly, you know, if you had Abraham, which was about 1800 B.C., uh, the beginning of the nation of Israel, and then you had Moses later on, the giving of the law in about 1400 B.C., and then you had devastatingly, instead of an obedience to a, the, the law, because we can't obey the law, you have the, the period of the book of Judges. And probably around Gideon's time, 1250, maybe 1275, nobody knows for sure, is when this story of Ruth and Boaz and what God did in their lives occurs. And who, who wrote this and why was it written? I would go with, again, what the ancient Jewish Talmud says. They say, Samuel wrote the book of Ruth and that makes sense, doesn't it? Because the book of Ruth ends with who? With David. And that genealogy that shows us that in this small family, with these small insignificant people, God is even able to produce the line of David that ultimately leads to Jesus. And so Samuel was writing, you know, because even he was puzzling over, Lord, why aren't you picking these tall, brawny guys? Why are you picking this, this young fellow, you know, who's the... The, the least of all the sons of Jesse. And then as he gets it, he wants to write a book that explains David is not an accident. David is the providence of God in times of struggle, in times of hardship of God showing how he chooses to use the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And it takes you all the way back to, to why there was David and ultimately why there was Jesus. You know, it's, it's, it's so comforting in some ways. At this time... Every character in the book of Ruth, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, had probably only seven books. The Pentateuch, the book of Joshua, and the book of Job. And using these seven books, they lived by faith in a Redeemer. We have 66 books today. We have so much more grace. 
And so there is a similar situation in which as we struggle with trials, the only way to live is to look above your situation through the Word of God to a sovereign God who is over our lives. And that's how the book of Ruth shows us hope. Hope even in dark times. But not only is it the resolution of the book of Judges through an infinite salvation in small people, but it's also a description, the book of Ruth, of how weak people are the people that God chooses to work with. Because when we are weak, then He is strong. But we keep forgetting that. We keep wanting to to put our own might into play in the way in which we solve our lives and our, our problems and our situations. And God waits for us to fall on our faces until we acknowledge that we can do nothing apart from Christ. And so the book of Ruth even shows us this, this great paradox of the gospel that we need to drink on every day, that it is only when you know the reality, and it's not some kind of an occasional thing, it's all the time, that I am weak, that you are weak, that you will be able to see Jesus as strong. It's weak men and women that know the strong Savior. Isn't that what Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27? Consider your calling, brethren, It wasn't that you came to Christ and you said, Lord, look at my degrees and Lord, look at my money and will you choose me, you know? It wasn't like applying for a visa for Australia. This is is the gospel, okay? And so consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen, and some of you may have memorized this verse, what? The weak things, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame those which are strong. And this book starts with weakness. Elimelech is not a strong man. If you, if you look briefly, and we're going to look at it again, uh, but in verse 2, the name of this man, in fact, in verse 1, it just says a certain man because there's no honor for him in what he's doing here. He's, he's not following the Lord. But the name of this man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. You know what Machlon means? And obviously as the head of the house, Elimelech gave them these names. Machlon means weakness. Kilion means sickness. This guy was so weak and so lacking in faith as he looked at the famine around him that he gave his sons even names like fever and flu. You know, we were talking earlier about using the Old Testament to name. All my kids are named after the Old Testament, but you don't want to use these names for your kids, okay? And there was that sense of just lacking trust in God, lacking hope in God, lacking any sense of God doing anything good. Do you feel like that sometimes? And it's out of that situation that you get these these glimpses of redemption. You know, people have asked, and by the way, this is a good principle for all Bible study, especially the Old Testament. Who's the hero of the book of Ruth? Wrong answer, Ruth. I mean, I, I love Ruth. We've got a lot to learn from Ruth. But she's not the hero of the story. Wrong answer, Naomi. Okay? Wrong answer, even David. The hero of any book, of any character study, is always God. And it's through the weakness of men that Christ and, and the Lord shines, Yahweh shines. And you look at these bookends, you know, at the beginning, at the end, end of the book, we, we read verse 6 
earlier. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab for she had heard in the land of Moab that what? That Yahweh had visited his people and given them bread. We move from discipline to grace. And then you turn back to the end of the book and you can see in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 13 similar phraseology used. So Boaz, Ruth chapter 4 verse 13, took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord, literally in the Hebrew, gave her or visited her. It's the similar kind of phraseology. It's only because of God that there is anything good that happens in this book. It's not because of Ruth. It's not because of Naomi. It's because of God's grace. And when we are weak and when we acknowledge that we are weak, we can see His great sovereign power in our lives. God prevails against your weakness. The issue is, are you willing to run to Him instead of running to something else? Even your pastor, I mean, I hate to say this, I'm a pastor, can't help you. God can. We are just channels to take you to Christ. So Ruth is going to remind us of this again and again. I just want to motivate you why should we study Ruth? You might be thinking, I'm a modern, you know, technological whiz here in the 21st century and you're taking me back to these ancient texts. Is there anything that we can learn from these books? Yes, there is. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, every word of God is tested. And it's tested for this purpose. Proverbs 30, verse 5, he's a shield. Are you going through trials right now like Ruth was? Well, the only way in which you can find the protection of God is through His Word. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. And that is not some mystical idea, but it is to come under the refuge of the understanding of even a book like Ruth. It can become a, a covering to you in your trials right now that you may be facing. Praise God, I don't know what they are, but God can help you through this book. As you look at the model and the example of what this dear lady did, what Boaz did in their time of trial. I want to challenge you. The book of Ruth is only 1,300 words, 85 verses, 15 minutes of your time, right? I mean, we waste our time on so many other stupid things. And, and, and this next few days, if you haven't done it already, I would challenge you to just read through this book maybe about three or four times and just allow the Word of God to become your meditation and your shield and your treasure. It's a great Old Testament book to go through verse by verse, which we're going to try to do in the next few days. But here's a couple of motivations, three motivations. Ruth, as, as we study Ruth, as you read Ruth, Ruth is going to change your life. Ruth is going to change our lives. Why? Because it's saturated with the Gospel. It's saturated with Jesus Christ. And, and the ideas in this book ultimately end with a genealogy that takes us to Jesus Christ, isn't it? The promised seed that was given in Genesis 3.15, that was given in, in Genesis chapter 12. It's so interesting. There, there are no miracles in this book. But it's all the normal, providential working of God. Isn't that where you and I are? You know, sometimes when you're saying, God, just take away this trial. Give me a miracle. Just heal me. God doesn't normally work that way. He works through his normal providences that take time, sometimes years. And the book of Ruth is like that. And it's profitable in dealing with bitterness. How do you respond to famine? How do you respond to 
widowhood or death in your family? How do you respond to physical sickness? It helps us to have a a response that takes us above the shallow, sometimes bitterness that we can have and have praise and joy even when the clouds are dark. It helps us to, to, to see the danger of living outside of God. It helps us to have an eternal perspective. The book of Ruth helps us to have a blessing of God that can be seen even when we're poor. You don't need money to be able to worship God. And and there are so many great lessons in this book that teach us how to have faith in God, how to have faith in Christ. I need that. Do you need that? And so this book is is, is God's blessing to us. Besides... uh, Boaz, there's, there's Naomi that teaches us how to be a Titus II woman, right? A faithful discipler. There's Ruth who teaches us how to be a faithful servant, even in times when she's getting nothing out of it. There's Boaz that teaches us to be a faithful provider and not use what he has for himself, but to think of others. All these three characters with just seven books are living by faith. How much more can we live by faith in our generation, Right? The book of Ruth will change your life. Make a commitment to read this book because it's written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. But Ruth will also challenge us to grow. It will not only change our lives, but it will challenge us to grow. I like to tell my kids, one of the greatest blessings of having family, you know, one foot in India, one foot in, in the States, and half a foot in Australia, is we get stretched. You know? and, and people that just live sometimes in their own world and in their own bubble, they never get stretched and they never grow. Praise God, the Word of God stretches us because it takes us out of our culture, into different cultures. It takes us out of our time into 3,300 years ago, into a time that we don't really understand. And, and, and often we say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to learn new concepts. I don't want to learn... But God has put these kinds of things in the Bible to enable us to go beyond our own comfort zone so that we would grow ultimately in Him. And so there's, there's so many things to learn here. I remember when I was studying Julius Caesar in school. You know, you look at it at first, Shakespeare, and you're saying, Lord, how are we going to get through this? But, but my professor, he was, he was so good. He said, okay, let's chuck the book, and what we're going to do is your going to be Brutus and you're going to be Cassius and you're going to be Caesar and we're just going to have role playing here and we, we, we had the, the most fun I think I aced my literature at that time which is crazy just because of the way in which he took us into that time and into that place and so I'm going to encourage you to even stretch your mind into to different terms I just want to introduce you to a, a few things the idea of Goel which is the idea of a kinsman redeemer. This is a word that occurs 20 times in Ruth that shows even ultimately a picture of Christ who becomes like us so that he can save us. The idea of of leveret marriage, of Boaz even going beyond maybe what he's expected to do so that he would take care of this widow and make sure that her name and the name of her children is not destroyed. The idea of gleaning. You're looking at Ruth going into somebody else's field and you would say, under Australian law, she needs to be thrown in jail, right? But it's, it's a different culture. That was actually appropriate that you would not have a welfare state where a poor person would just say, hey, give me the dole, but you would say, you know what? You need to walk behind people that are gleaning and whatever they leave behind, you work in order to feed your family. 
I, maybe we can learn something from this culture. And so it's not welfare, but it's work state for poor people even. The idea of uh, spreading your skirt, first of all, why is a man wearing a skirt, right? But that's, that's what they wore in those days. And then you're saying, Ruth, what are you doing? You're taking Boaz's skirt and you're putting it over yourself. What's going on here? You know, and I had, I had these long discussions even with some of my friends in, in seminary and they said, you know, yeah, that's impurity, that's sexual, sexuality. And I say, you know, you're taking our culture and putting it in that culture. Our culture is filthy. You don't do that. And what was going on there had nothing to do with impurity. In fact, it had everything to do with even this idea of God in Ezekiel 16 spreading his skirt over Israel and saying, I am your provider. I am going to take care of you. And so that's just a brief example. You're going to be challenged. You're going to be stretched. It's good sometimes to, to have your mind work through these puzzles because at the end of it, there's a treasure. There's a treasure of seeing God's work and God's grace and God's goodness. Ruth will not only challenge us, but Ruth will also comfort us. I think ultimately that's what we find in redemption. Isn't redemption a resting place at night? Because you know no matter what happens, nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I think that's what Ruth teaches us. You look at Israel, you look at what's happening in the book of Judges, and you're saying, God, you need to give up on these people, and you choose, choose India. We're bigger, we're better. You know, choose some other nation. Isn't it amazing that God hasn't given up on Israel, and it's not because of Israel? Isn't it amazing because God hasn't given up on me, and not given up on you? That's an evidence of the fact that His love is more faithful than mine. Praise God for that. And it overcomes my sin. It overcomes my rebellion. And this is the God that we see in the book of Ruth. Isn't that a, a resting place for you as a Christian? If you're not a Christian tonight, I pray that you would find this comfort because there is no comfort otherwise in this life that lasts except the comfort of the gospel. And we find that in the book of Ruth. Ultimately, when you see the love of Ruth and Naomi, it's just a picture of, of God's love. When you see the love of Ruth and Boaz and Boaz loving her, it's a picture of Christ, isn't it? And Paul makes that connection because every marriage teaches you about the ultimate marriage. All our marriages are temporary, even Ruth and Boaz's. The ultimate marriage that is illustrated in all marriage is Jesus. Ephesians 5.25, that He laid down His life for you and me so that we would be His eternal bride. And that's what we see in Ruth. I'm sorry if I'm yelling at you. It's not because I hate you. It's because I just love this. <laughs> and I trust you're going to love this too. The book of Ruth will comfort us because we know that no matter what comes against us in evil, in calamity, the sovereignty of God is greater than all of that. Because it is not just love, but it is sovereign love. It is love that is exercised from the throne that is above all thrones, the throne in heaven. That's why James says to us, right, when we go through trials, don't be deceived, brethren. You're going through a physical trial. You're going through a family trial. You're going through a financial trial. I don't know what trial you're going through, but if you're a Christian, you're going through a trial. But you know what we do often? We get deceived, and what do we say? God, you're tempting me. God, maybe you're not good. God, maybe you're not sovereign. And what does James remind us? He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing 
even the trial, even the discipline, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is, life may change, but with Him there is no variation or shifting shadow. And the book of Ruth teaches us that. God's powerful plan of salvation to use the weak and their trials to highlight His grace. Are you, are you ready for this adventure? I get excited. I taught through Ruth uh, three years ago, and I'm so excited to teach on it again because I need to learn these lessons again. And so let's just look at the first six verses, really the first five verses. And this is what we're going to have as our portion even for today before you go to bed at night just to meditate on the good hand of God even in discipline as we read in Hebrews chapter 12. And you can see faithlessness in Elimelech that is highlighted by the faithfulness of God. Why? Because as I said earlier, God will not allow His children to get away with faith, faithlessness. He always disciplines them till they come back to His grace. You know, we think sometimes that it is love to not discipline. The most unloving thing that a father can do or a mother can do is to let their children walk in sin till they destroy themselves. And sometimes we, we, we let that happen when they're small, right? You talk about rebellion that happens when teenagers... I, th- I think many times, I, I'm not going to say this is true for everyone, it started because of a lack of discipline when they were two and when they were three. And it accumulates. But our Father in heaven is not like that. Praise God. And so we can see in Ruth chapter 1 and verses 1 through 6 the marks of a faithlessness that is judged by God. What is the kind of thing that is going to cause the hand of discipline upon our lives through God? This is what this passage teaches us. As you look at chapter 1 verse 1, we see the setting is a setting of famine. That shouldn't surprise us. If you read the Old Testament, God promised that He would shut the heavens when people strayed into idolatry. God promised that He would caused the ground to not be fruitful when people moved into immorality. This is not something that is out of the blue. And, you know, I just want to remind us of this. There are some differences, of course, between Israel and us. But we live in a day and age, especially in the evangelical world, where there's extremes. On, on one extreme, everything is supernatural, Right? If the power fails or if there's you know, a door jammed or there's a flat tire, it's a demon, right? Everything is mystical and everything is supernatural. But then maybe some of us on the conservative side, nothing is supernatural anymore. It's just everything is happening because of, of manipulation in human beings. And the Bible teaches us that life is not natural in that sense as we think about it from an atheistic perspective, but everything that happens in our life is supernatural. It is ordained because God ordains it. And so you find Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 speaking about the ordained discipline of God. It came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land and a certain man I like that phrase. It's going to come again in in chapter 4. God doesn't even want to mention his name because his name is not worthy of honor initially. He'll tell us his name later. But he just says, a certain guy. Have you ever been, you know, in situations where you don't remember somebody's name? You know, I've been here after nine and a half years. I don't remember some of your names. So I'm going to go, hey, 
guy, how are you? You know, it's just kind of that abstract, I, I don't know you personally. And, but the worst dishonor is when God does that. A certain man, because of the actions that he did. And there's many commentators that tend to negate Elimelech living in rebellion, but I think it's pretty clear. He was not walking in ways that were ways that were faith-based, that were based in trust in Yahweh. Three marks of the faithlessness of Elimelech that can become a warning to us. I think the first mark of faithlessness, and this would be a wrong way to respond to your trials, is you begin to treasure earth more than heaven. You know, it's not going to be necessary that trials will make you more spiritual. Sometimes trials can make you more carnal. And this, this becomes a fallacy for us sometimes. Oh, I'm going through trials, hallelujah, I'm going to become more like Christ. Not necessarily. Not until you deal with your heart. And so Elimelech, instead of treasuring heaven, he begins to treasure earth. In the days that the judges ruled, people were living in rebellion. People were living in moral anarchy, lying, stealing, false religion, sexual sin, murder, brutality, therefore famine. Elimelech should have meditated on, on verses like Leviticus 26 and verses 18 and 19. If you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And I will break down your pride of power. And I will make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. God was doing exactly what he had said because he's a loving father. What should Elimelech have done? When famine came, even if the nation of Israel wasn't doing it, he should have bowed his knee and repented of his own sin. Deuteronomy 30 verses 8 and 9, If you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today, then Yahweh your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, in the offspring of your cattle, in the produce of your gown. It's, it's very specific. God doesn't act in ways that are outside of his word and his character. But instead, what did Elimelech do? Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Machlon and Kilion. Look at the end of the verse. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Two things should shock you when you're reading that verse. The land of Moab and remained there. He treasured Moab instead of God's promises. Even though Moab was so clearly out of God's promises. And Elimelech had so much going for him where he should have known who God was. His name even, Eli Melech. My God is my king. His parents believed in God at least, apparently. The name of his wife even, Naomi, pleasant or lovely that God should produce humility and kindness. Apparently they, they had parents that were believers or they wouldn't have given them those names. But what names did he give his sons? Fever and flu. I don't think God is even in my life anymore. Let's go to Moab, wife. Their family even seemed to be a family that was aristocratic. There's two evidences in this verse. It says they were Ephrathites. That was a leading family in Bethlehem. People that probably were at a higher class, had means, had money. 
In fact, Naomi even says at the end of this chapter, in chapter 1 and verse 21, she said, I went out full, but Yahweh brought me back empty. Isn't that interesting? Actually, what it means is Elimelech wasn't poor at this point. He had money. He came from an aristocratic family, but he was just looking ahead. He was being a good banker, a good investor, and saying, you know, probably our stocks are going to go down. The dollar is going to fall because we're living in a bad place. Let's move to another place where there's a better economy and better jobs. No church, but that's okay. Because money makes the world go round, not God. And you can see what's happening in this man's mind as he's beginning to erode the faith that maybe his parents taught him to have in God. Unbelief and apostasy undergirds his thinking. You know, what should also shock us is Moab. You know the history of Moab? Maybe you don't. I'll give you 30 seconds, okay? It started off with incest. The daughters of Lot committed incest with their father, and the son of the firstborn was Moab. And that incest then led to continued idolatry. Numbers chapter 25, Moab was characterized as a, as a nation that had idolatry and prostitution, and their, their habit was to tempt Israel to come away from faithfulness and do those things. Moab had this famous king, Eglon, you remember? Big roly-poly king, Eglon. And he was the guy that oppressed Israel. They had the god Chemosh, who received particularly sacrifices of children in the fire. And so there was much for a person that loved God to say, this is not a country that I need to go to. And there were warnings even, Deuteronomy 23.3, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation shall they not enter the assembly of the Lord. So if they can't enter the assembly of the Lord, we're not supposed to be in their assembly. Out of the frying pan, into the fire, goes Elimelech. Trusting in the treasures of earth. Then Jesus say, Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, especially in a time of trial where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Matthew Henry said, this is evidence of a distrusting spirit to leave the land of promise at the sign of the first inconvenience. Watch your heart, brothers and sisters, today. As you go through trials, it's an opportunity for you to even show your family, to show the world that Jesus and heaven is more satisfying than this earth. Isn't it? And Elimelech failed. Not only was he faithless in treasuring earth, but he was also faithless in trusting in chariots. You remember? That's taken from Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some, some in horses. That was like some trust in tanks and some trust in you know, technology, but we trust in the name of Yahweh our God. Like father, like son. You look at verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Remember, God is in charge of our lives. And so he died. He was judged by Yahweh. And she was left with her two sons. So what did they do? Let us repent, mom, and let's go back. No, instead what they did was, I don't know how long they were in Moab, but verse 4, they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. This was their father's influence upon them. 
The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And here's the other shocking statement. They lived there for ten years. That's a long time to stay in a country that is cursed by God. And again, it is these men, instead of following Deuteronomy 23, they're doing that which was clearly forbidden by God, which even later on in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1, the people of the Israel and the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, Ezra rebukes them, have not separated themselves from the people of the lands according to their abominations. And he lists these, these nations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Parasites, the Ammonites, and then the Moabites, right? And so you, you have a very clear indication for, for generation upon generation that you don't marry into a nation that will take you away from Christ. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I even see people in my own church and go on, I'm sure it's the same way here, saying, you know, she's not a believer, he's not a believer, but their family has money. And you don't know they're good people. And I say, no, they're not good people. They're under Satan. How can you say that about him? Well, I can say that about him not because I have that opinion, but because God has that opinion. Even for us in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. This is more than marriage. I think it's all of life, but particularly marriage. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? And you can say, hey, but look at the end of the book of Ruth. God produced David and Jesus out of that. The end never justifies the means, okay? God is greater than our sin, but that doesn't make our sin less sinful. So don't start using those arguments in your own heart because what happens? Ruth is blessed, but Machlon and Kilion aren't. And so you can see, this is the last we see of these men in the Bible. They're never mentioned again after this. They have no portion in the plan of God in redemption because they live not by faith in God, but faith in this world. Brothers and sisters, when you go through trials, remember that the resources of this world can never satisfy Sometimes you might need to lose a job. Sometimes you might need to lose maybe even a marriage proposal. You might need to lose even different resources that you think might help you. As long as you follow Christ in the eternal perspective, He will enrich you. He will bless you. He will cause you to come to greater shores of blessing. And eternity will sing His praises as He works out His goodness in our lives. Elimelech was faithless in also not just treasuring earth, trusting in chariots, but in trivializing the discipline of God. And this is, in some senses, one of the worst things. After all of this had happened, they still stayed there for 10 years. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, which we read earlier, has this warning. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly. Let me read those words again. This is the problem that we have. Do not regard lightly the discipline. Do not take for granted the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. All the men died 
Because God is sovereign. And even today, brothers and sisters, there's consequences on earth. Some people say, you know, I'm just going to enjoy, eat, drink, and be merry because maybe hell is far away and, you know, I can deal with it. And I want to tell you that hell is terrible and hell is eternal and hell is final. But I want to also tell you that there are consequences even today and we forget about that. Just like we see in the book of Ruth. God will deal with us. God would deal with his people in ways that will cause us to be stopped and stayed from our sin because he loves us. And it's not always if you're sick or if you're facing calamity that you need to be thinking about, oh, was there some personal sin? But isn't it true that most of the time I don't even examine my heart? Lord, is there some area of sin that I need to confess that could be an area that you are pruning me in and disciplining me in? Do we even think in that way? I mean, our fallback is always, oh, God is good and I am sinless. I would say most of the time, I am sinful. And I would say that about myself. May God help you to examine your own heart. To die like these men died in a foreign land is the ultimate curse. You remember Joseph, he, Jacob, he wanted his bones... Even though they were in Egypt, he said, when, I don't care how many years it takes, you take my bones back to the promised land. <laughs> that didn't happen to these men. And the same thing might be true in our lives. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30 and 31, it's in the context of the Lord's table and how people were even being selfish and idolatrous at the love feast. And this is what God said, for this reason... I'm a sovereign God. Many among you are weak and sick and a number have fallen dead. That's, that's what falling asleep means. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. And Naomi feels the weight the most. Wife to widow, money to poverty, sons to no sons. But now she's ready for grace. When you're humble, that's when God will lift you up. And in verse 6, you can see, we're going to look at this tomorrow, okay? But just, you can see a hint of this. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people in giving them food. These are three verbs of, of action, of faith. She arose, she returned, she went out. And the object of her faith? Yahweh had visited his people with food. Somebody had given her a word about what God had done. Faith comes by hearing and hearing about the work of Christ. And that's what happens in her life. Hugh Latimer, have you heard of him? He was the man that said to Ridley as they were both being burned at the stake, he said, play the man. Play the man because we shall be raised by Christ today. And they both praised God and sang as they were burning at the stake because of being true to the preaching of the gospel in England. He said this about trials. Just a good reminder. He said, afflictions like nothing else stirs up in us a desire to be like Christ. When everything is going our way, we care not for Christ. But when we be in tribulation and cast into prison, then we have a desire to Him. Then we will learn to call upon Him. Then we hunger and thirst after Him. Then we are desirous to feed upon Him. As long as we be in health and prosperity, we care not for Him. Isn't that 
the gospel. It's so different from the false health wealth gospel, isn't it? But this is the gospel. And God is not against our joy, brothers and sisters. He's for a greater joy that can go beyond what the treasures of this world can give. He loves us more than you can imagine. And that's the story of the book of Ruth. I pray that God would work in your life even tonight and in the next few days to teach you not to be faithless. From this chapter onwards, as we look at the next few verses, we're going to be learning faith, faith, faith. Like the disciples, may our prayer be, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its challenging power in our lives. We thank you that it is living and active. May you work in your people and help us to follow you as the only treasure that we have. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.